Welcome to the Proper Lookout Podcast, published by the Statutory Insurance Group of McCabe Kerwood. In this series, our CTP experts will discuss a range of topics, sharing their thoughts on an industry trend or an intriguing legal issue, explaining the intricacies of an important case, and hopefully imparting some of the knowledge that they have gained. Hi there, listeners. This is Peter Hunt back in the Proper Lookout podcast, and today I'm flying solo. I hope everybody is safe and well. I hope your families are also safe and well as we continue to endure COVID-19. That said, today's topic is the concept of relative culpability. Now, relative culpability is a concept which underpins the assessment of contributory negligence, both in the common law field and also in um, stat benefits under Meyer when assessing mostly at fault. It's a concept which goes back to a 1985 High Court decision. Now, I'm going to fumble this pronunciation because I always get it wrong, but I think it's Podrabasek and Australian Iron and Steel P2I-LTD. That's the case which underpins both the concept of relative culpability and causal potency, which are both relevant to assessing contributory negligence. So what is relative culpability? It basically involves a comparison when assessing contribneg of what the insured driver did wrong versus what the claimant did wrong. Now, I think there's a tendency when assessing contribneg to go, okay, breach has been accepted, that's fine. We'll now focus all our attention on what the claimant did wrong and come up with a percentage of contributory negligence. That's actually the wrong approach. What you should do is physically list the things the claimant did wrong physically list the things the insured did wrong, and then apportion blame between them. And that apportionment should always add up to 100%. So to illustrate the point, I'm going to start off by talking about a couple of pedestrian cases. The first one is the matter of Turkmani, which was a New South Wales Court of Appeal decision in 2009. In that matter, the defendant driver was driving along the Kominara Parkway towards the intersection with Fox Valley Road. If you're familiar with the area in northwest Sydney, it's where the sanitarium hospital is on the corner. As the defendant drove towards the intersection, the plaintiff was jogging along Fox Valley Road towards the same intersection. And the evidence was that the insured driver had a two-second window to spot the jogger approaching the intersection as they appear between some parked vehicles. The jogger then ran across the intersection against a red light for pedestrians and into the path of the insured vehicle. The insured was travelling at only 40 to 50 kilometres per hour at the time. So comparing their relative culpability, the want of care of the driver was relatively minor. It amounted to a, a momentary lapse in failing to keep a proper lookout and not spotting the jogger in that two-second window which was available to the driver. By comparison, the want of care by the jogger was extreme. The jogger ran across the road against a red light without apparent regard to the presence of vehicles approaching the intersection such as that driven by the defendant. So in balancing up what the jogger did wrong against what the driver did wrong, 
the balance is heavily in favour of the jogger being predominantly responsible for the accident. And indeed, the Court of Appeal found 80% contributory negligence in that particular matter. In a similar vein is the matter of Cook versus Hawes, H-A-W-E-S, which occurred, sorry, which was decided in 2002. And that's one of my favourite cases because I acted for the defendant insurer in that matter. And it actually went to a special leave application to the High Court where the plaintiff was unsuccessful in obtaining special leave. But that was my one and only trip to the High Court to date. In any event, in that matter, the plaintiff emerged from the QVB building with the intention of running across George Street um, long before there were trams in place, across George Street into the Hilton Hotel. It was around 9am on a weekday morning and the plaintiff decided to run across the road, ignoring the fact that there were pedestrians waiting patiently on the curb for the pedestrian lights to turn green. In the meantime, the insured driver was heading towards Circular Quay from the plaintiff's right in the middle lane. The defendant saw some movement on his left and decided that he wouldn't hit the brakes until he knew what the movement was. When he saw it was a pedestrian, he hit the anchors but was unable to avoid a collision. So again, similar to Turkmani, the relative culpability weighs heavily in favour of the plaintiff because his want of care was extreme in running across the road against a red light, whereas the defendant's want of care amounted to a momentary lapse in failing to react immediately to the movement which occurred on his left and hitting the brakes. In that case, the Court of Appeal found 75% contributory negligence. Now, as a general concept, my view is that you'll find high levels of contribneg in pedestrian cases, particularly where the pedestrian either ran across the road or appeared on the road in circumstances where there was no chance or very little chance for the defendant driver to see them before they arrived in their path. By contrast, there is less chance of a high level of contribneg in cases involving passengers. And that's because where a vehicle is controlled by an intoxicated or inexperienced driver, both the passenger and the driver have contributed to the ensuing accident by accepting that risk. However, the driver starts the car and has their hands on the steering wheel. As such, it stands to reason, I think, that the driver's contribution to the cause of the accident will ordinarily exceed the passenger's. That last point I made bears repetition. What I'm saying is where the passenger knows that the driver is affected by alcohol or drugs, and of course the driver also knows that they are affected, both the passenger and the driver have decided to get into the vehicle and go for a ride and accept the risk that the driver might lose control and have an accident because they are affected by alcohol or drugs. So at this point, both the passenger and the driver have made kind of an equal contribution to the passenger's injury because they both accepted the risk of entering the vehicle despite the driver being intoxicated. What pushes the driver's culpability above the passenger is that in addition to getting into the vehicle, the driver has also taken control of the vehicle by accepting the role as driver. And for that reason, in the majority of cases involving passengers claiming against drivers who are intoxicated, the relative culpability for the 
passenger's injury will fall heavily on the driver rather than the passenger. There are, however, some exceptions, and those predominantly relate to claims where the passenger has surrendered control of the entire situation to the driver. There are two cases I want to briefly mention in this regard. One is McKenzie and nominal defendant, which was quite a famous case in the 90s where the district court initially found 100% contributory negligence, but that was knocked down on appeal to 80%. But in that case, the plaintiff passenger surrendered complete control of the situation to the defendant driver. The plaintiff owned a Harley-Davidson, and after a long period of drinking with his mate, he decided that it was time to go for a ride on the bike, and he gave the driver uh, the keys, even though he knew he was heavily intoxicated and had never ridden a Harley-Davidson before. What makes that different to most passenger cases involving alcohol is that the the passenger had controls of the situation rather than the driver because the passenger urged the intoxicated driver to drive the bike. The other case I want to discuss is Joslin and Berryman, where the Court of Appeal, after the matter was remitted from the High Court, found 60% contributory negligence. In that matter, the plaintiff passenger owned the vehicle and he knew it had a propensity to roll, but allowed the defendant to drive even though she was intoxicated, sleep-deprived, and not driven a vehicle for three years due to a license suspension and was inexperienced in driving a ute in any event. Given each of those factors, like Mackenzie, the plaintiff in Joslin had control of the circumstances and could have called a halt to the proceedings, which is in contrast to the typical passenger case where the passenger is a passive participant in the enterprise. So to conclude... Relative culpability involves a comparison of what the insured did wrong as opposed to what the claimant did wrong. In my view, in pedestrian cases, there is a good argument that the pedestrian should bear the majority of the relative culpability when they have run across the road or appeared without much notice to the driver. Whereas in passenger cases, it is much more likely that relative culpability will lie with the driver who has control of the vehicle. So thank you very much for your time and for listening. Please let me know if you have any questions. In the meantime, it's dangerous out there, so whatever you do, please always try to keep a proper lookout. Until next time, farewell. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Proper Lookout Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information on anything discussed, please contact Peter Hunt at peter.hunt at or visit our website to see McCabe Kerwood's full team of specialists.